talk to interesting people about interesting things. Today I have Esperanza Fonseca with me, um, who is also known as proletarian feminist. Esperanza is an incredible writer and uh, just really has, I've learned a lot from. And so we are gonna chat today about uh, proletarian feminism and uh, among some other things, some other hot topics. Uh, how are you doing, Esperanza? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. We had a bit of thunder and lightning and rain last night in Southern California. So oh, no. I was a little, you know, shook, but back <laughs> together now. <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot in California, I feel like. No, it's, it's normally like 112 degrees and completely dry. Yeah, that's why I've wanted to move there for so long, but then I'd have to become American. So it's like a, you know, healthcare or sun. It's a tough choice. Um, so, yeah, so you are also, you've been writing under the name of Proletarian Feminist. I think that right now there's a really interesting sort of uh, and kind of aggravating culture war going on. Uh, where, you know, I feel like there's a, a crisis in feminism, or at least there's a sort of, I don't know, to me, it feel, I almost felt like it was imploding, and I was kind of ready to give up on it, um, until I, like, read your writing, and I read the work of Anuradha Gandhi as well. Um, so do you want to explain a little bit what proletarian feminism is, and what makes it different from other forms of feminism? Yeah, so, you know, I would largely agree with you about just sort of feeling fed up with feminism in general. I got my uh, undergraduate degree uh, technically in, you know, feminist studies. That was one of my majors, which was mostly, you know, philosophy. But, um, you know, feminism is largely uh, a trend in academia, right? And it's not really connected to on the ground movements, or at least those of us in our generation, the feminism that we know in the centers of capitalism, such as the US or Canada or Europe, that's the kind of feminism that we know. Uh, proletarian feminism, on the other hand, originated out of uh, people, revolutionary people's wars in places like India and Nepal. And it you know, wasn't originated by, uh, you know, academic theorists in ivory towers in the centers of capitalism, but it originated in actual uh, revolutionary practice. Um, and I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the analyses of proletarian feminism uh, point towards, uh, say, class as the primary contradiction and not gender. Uh, because they're actually involved in making revolution. Um, and so, you know, there's some theoretical differences between proletarian and other forms of feminism. Uh, one of the, the primary differences that I think is most important to highlight is that proletarian feminism, uh, you know, sees patriarchy not as um, what you might call patriarchy, uh, qua patriarchy, for example, the system of uh, patrilineal property relations that existed in previous modes of production. Um, but we see patriarchy as existing and lingering in the superstructure of society, everything from our laws to our culture to our art, um, you know, to, to everything that deforms the economic base. Uh, so these, uh, you know, male chauvinism is sort of an ideology that continues to uh, influence capitalism, but is not part of capitalism itself, right? So patriarchy does not have its own laws of motion like capitalism does, um, but it still, you know, lingers from previous modes of production. Yeah, so I, I guess like... Um, on, on the other hand of, or like I, one of the things I was I was gonna ask, which you kind of addressed is, is some have argued, especially in 
sort of the more Marxist corners that um, if you're a Marxist or anti-capitalist that might render feminism redundant because it would address the economic issues. So um, I guess what you're saying is like, no, there's still a need for feminist explanation, but it's not the sort of base. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, while I hear the argument that, you know, feminism is, you know, a lot of people will say, especially more dogmatic Marxists, uh, will say like, oh, feminism is simply a bourgeois distortion. And any attempt at advancing feminism is, you know, it's uh, fundamentally bourgeois. I, I would disagree with that. You know, when you look at proletarian feminism, they were not interested in advancing bourgeois, you know, democratic reforms for women, such as, you know, Western feminism did. So what do I mean by that? Um, you know, Western feminism uh, started out, like when you look at first wave feminism in advancing uh, the rights for, you know, women to fully participate in liberal democracy. Um, well, in the peripheries of capitalism, uh, where, you know, their nations were never able to fully develop into fully developed capitalist economies. Um, they were not interested in simply pursuing a bourgeois, like, you know, ref democratic reform to allow themselves to develop into capitalist nations, right? So that kind of feminism was not of interest to them. Um, they wanted to move straight to a socialist revolution. And so when you look at, for example, um, the writings of Hisila Yami, uh, who was, you know, a, a Maoist leader from uh, Nepal uh, before she, you know, later turned uh, towards revisionism, you see that her feminism um, was actually about how we increase uh, women's leadership uh, in the revolutionary struggle and in the party, um, and that increasing women's participation in struggle and in ideological development and leadership uh, is actually what's key towards guaranteeing uh, women's liberation. Uh, so, you know, you could say after the revolution. Yeah, well, I, I mean, and I, I think I, I saw you kind of respond to this, uh, uh, I don't want to say accusation, because it sounds like so confrontational, but to the sort of misconception where you were saying that you organize both women and men, and uh, that, like, so this idea of, of a feminism that might be pitting uh, certain subordinated people against each other is not the sort of kind that you are, are practicing. And so I, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting to ex sort of explore this idea of organizing people because I, I think that it's kind of um, overlooked on the left right now, especially if you see, like, I feel like a lot of activism comes in the form of like posting and less so of on the ground organizing. And so I was wondering if you'd be interested in talking about uh, your work and what you've been doing uh, in labor organizing. Yeah, so, you know, I've had Twitter since 2009, but it wasn't until um, after, you know, a few months into the pandemic that I really started to use Twitter. And uh, that's because I've been, you know, sort of stuck in my room and I've been in the process of moving, so I haven't been on the ground organizing. And the reason why I say that is because I think so many people have these very lofty ideas about, you know, how we reach the masses um, and how we, you know, build a revolutionary movement, but they've never organized people or understood what it's like to speak to everyday working people. So for me, my, my perspective is entirely different because, you know, I used to be um, a, a union organizer. I've also organized workers at, you know, national worker centers. Um, and I'm, you know, currently taking a break from that work, but hoping to jump back in within the next month or two. Um, and I think that when you actually, you know, are tasked with organizing low wage workers, um, you're really forced to confront a lot of the assumptions about, uh, 
movement building about social or economic justice um, that maybe you learned in college or you learned from, you know, like the sort of mainstream discourse, uh, but that then becomes shattered when you're actually organizing everyday low-wage workers. Um, so just a really brief example of that is, you know, when I was in college, the way we would, you know, talk about transphobia, for example, um, is, is really sort of moralizing about it, right? And like, you know, people who, uh, you know, maybe didn't use the right language or, you know, didn't want to struggle for gender neutral bathrooms, we would sort of write them off as, you know, reactionary or regressive or even go so far as to name them as the oppressor, <laughs> like as if they're responsible for oppressing us. But when I was organizing unions, uh, you know, I, I was organizing at Disneyland. Disney's one of the largest, you know, corporations in the U.S., uh, you know, and even in the world. Um, and some of those workers were absolutely what we would call transphobic. Um, but over time, you know, I would have to knock on their door, uh, you know, sometimes five times before they would let me in to have a conversation with them. But as I worked with them and built, I earned their trust. We fought together against their boss and we won. That transphobia was completely overcome uh, throughout the course of organizing and transformed into a real politics of solidarity. Um, and I think that's something that many people who talk about these issues on Twitter simply uh, don't understand. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, you know, I, I think that's like exposure, first of all, is one of the biggest and I think best ways to deal with bigotry. And, and it's not like, you know, chastising someone, it's literally just meeting someone and being like, wow, we're all people like we're all kind of in this struggle. And um, I, I, I've kind of noticed that, especially with uh, like trans politics, a lot of people have never met a trans person, but like trans politics themselves, that itself is everywhere. Um, it's like all over the magazines, it's all over uh, Twitter, it's all over the front page of the Atlantic, whatever you want to call it. It's it's a very it's a very heated issue, and I think also um, there's like I think what makes people more pissed is like the face of the movement is people like. Caitlyn Jenner or something like that and then it makes people think it's like a bourgeois boutique issue rather than you know yeah or or even uh what's that person's name Jacob uh Tobia or Toba I don't know how to pronounce their name mm -hmm. and Alok right who make uh you know being transgender out to be nothing more than a political statement when in reality, the majority of us, we just want to live our lives. You know, I'm not, I didn't transition so that I could make a, you know, 24 seven political statement. I transitioned so that I could walk down the street, people would recognize me as a woman, which is how I identify and I could live my life normally, right. you know? Yeah, it's something that I think is so heated when it doesn't need to be. Um, and something that, uh, like I, I've just noticed that it's it's having the discourse is like walking on eggshells, whether you're talking to someone who is on board with trans rights or whether you're talking to someone who's like has a career off of hating on trans rights. Like it's either way, I just feel like you bring it up and there's a sort of uh, explosion. Um, and so I like, <laughs> it, it's something that's that, uh, I think it's an issue that like the left is going to have to deal with and, and resolve. But what do you think that people get the most wrong about dealing with this issue? And what kind of suggestions do you have? Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, I find that like oftentimes both sides of, you know, the debates around really any transgender issues are just so irrational, right? Like, um, so for example, you know, just sort of talking about like the, the bathroom debate. So, you know, on one hand, you have uh, some people who would argue that a, you know, 
no transgender women should be allowed in the women's restroom, even if they look like women, they act like, you know, for all intents and purposes, they are women. Um, you know, they would walk into the male restroom and be told they're in the wrong restroom, uh, telling them they should still use the men's restroom, right? But then on the other hand, you have trans activists who say things like, well, it doesn't matter if you transition, right? You could be a man with a fully grown beard, short hair, uh, you know, uh, absolutely no female or feminine characteristics whatsoever. And if you want to use the female restroom, you should be allowed to. Um, and, and I think both of those are just so uh, disconnected from uh, material reality. And I, I think that we need to start looking for more rational solutions to these things uh, without sort of, you know, moralizing about them. Because whenever someone tries to propose some sort of rational solutions, you have people from both sides, although in my experience, predominantly the trans side, um, that, you know, just sort of attack you and dogpile on you um, without even really sort of listening to what you have to say. Yeah, and and you know it's it's crazy because I think that a lot of times we kind of underestimate the power of common sense and like like if I were to see you uh, walk into a men's washroom, I would be like, what the hell? Like it would, it would be very strange. And I'm sure that people would have that reaction as well. And I think, you know, people, um, again, like they tend to, it's the same with like this new, there's a new debate about, um, sports and there's a bill put out in the U S about like trans women and sports. And, um, I'm thinking like, does this really require federal legislation? Um, how many how many trans women are are playing competitive sports in the U.S. and it, it almost seems like there's people want there to be like a blanket solution where it's like like you said like everyone under this condition has to go to this bathroom everyone under this condition must be allowed to do sports it doesn't matter what the sport is it doesn't matter where you are in your transition um, it just seems like there's a very strong desire from again like it's not it's like both like the left side of things and the right side of things um and yeah <laughs> yeah and you know an interesting point to this conversation is uh you know I, I just interviewed a trans woman from the UK uh from South London who uh was talking about you know the recent uh, legislative decision on you know, uh, hormone blockers that would delay puberty for uh, minors. And something that she brought up to me that I found really interesting is that the way she sees this debate framed is that on one hand, you have the uh, radical feminists who come off very rational um, and logical because what they're saying is based in an idea of a biological reality. Now, I would argue that they tend to uh, veer into the air of biological essentialism um, more often than not. Uh, but, you know, in appearance, at least they come off rational. Whereas the other side of the debate, which is, you know, the trans side, is based entirely in these superficial readings of gender performativity and postmodern gender theory that are entirely disconnected from reality. And so it makes sense why people who are looking for a common sense solution or something that makes sense would side with uh, the radical feminists, even if they are biological determinists, essentialists, whatever, because there's no materialist trans argument that makes sense to people. And I, I think that's a gap that needs to be filled in somewhere. Yeah, so like how, I, I guess like the, I've definitely found myself because I studied a lot of, of feminist theory as well when I was in, in university. Um, I, I never cared for Judith Butler or like any of these POMO performativity theories, but 
um, at the same time was obviously very off put by like the sort of essentialism uh, in the sort of uh, more radical feminist traditions as well. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't want to be like full on turfs or whatever. And there's also people who uh, don't want to like, like, I think, you know, there's this idea that if you don't accept postmodern theory, and a lot of these are very obscure theories that most people don't really think about or know about. And so it's like, if you're demanding that, you know, people accept these, these kinds of obscure theories, um, as we discussed before about Jacob and, and Alec's uh, sort of scenarios, um, it's gonna alienate a large group of people as well. And so it's kind of like, we need to, we need to like kind of strike a, a balance <laughs> uh, that's grounded in materialism, but I'm not really sure how to do that. You know, I think what you're, what you're doing with like the labor organizing is one way, I guess, but I mean, how, how do we come up with like a coherent sort of theory that ensures dignity for everyone? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, I, I haven't really sketched out the answer to that. I, I think that we still need to develop it. But I, I think most of all is that, you know, we need to start raising the consciousness of our people um, and educating people, you know, to analyze things in a material way uh, or else we're just going to sort of feed into more reaction. Um, you know, because again, like the problem with Jacob and Alok, I mean, they have many, many countless problems that I don't care to list here. But like one of the biggest problems is their brand of trans activism is based on a complete denial of male violence, you know? Um, and so I, I find that like both sides of the debate ignore, uh, you know, sort of the social uh, reality that is part of material reality, whereas, you know, the radical feminists only want to acknowledge uh, biological conditions as material reality um, and not social conditions. And then the trans side just sort of discards both uh, biological and social reality and just sort of wants everyone to conform to this postmodern gender theory that makes no sense to anyone. And so I think, uh, you know, we just sort of need to uh, at attack the holes in both of those theories and something else will emerge. I'm interested in, in what you were just saying about um, ignoring male violence on the part of, of people like uh, Alec and uh, not to make it about them, but you know, uh, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, so for example, when you argue that it is transphobic to have uh, spaces that only women can enter, you're ignoring the reality of male violence that is pervasive in all of our cultures, right? All of our societies. Um, and that is, uh, that is reactionary, right? Um, it's fundamentally based in some fantasy idea about the world that's just totally disconnected from how things actually play out male violence is a real phenomenon and it needs to be addressed. Part of the way that we address that is by ensuring that women, when they are in vulnerable positions, such as in a changing room, a locker room, a bathroom, etc., cetera, uh, do not have to be exposed to men. Um, you know, and, and I think it's pretty obvious why. Uh, and, you know, some people might argue, well, if, you know, if a man wants to rape someone, he could just walk into the women's restroom. And, you know, sure, that's a possibility, but let's also not forget that women's restrooms don't have a problem with, you know, lesbians or anyone going in there and cruising and trying to hook up with other people or spy and peep on them, whereas men's restrooms do, right? <laughs> because uh, the way men are socialized or whatever explanation you want to, you know, give them, uh, there's a problem there that hasn't been resolved and you're not going to resolve it by pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been like, kind of, I've thought about this a lot, especially with this new like JK Rowling article she writes about, uh, where she writes about this kind of thing about 
uh, men in, in women's spaces or, or whatever. And um, I, I, I have like a few kind of thoughts on it. And like, you know, one is that I, I worry that some of the discourse is like infantilizing to women when it's like, okay, we don't want like trans women in women's shelters. And it's like, do you think that like, you know, we can't handle that. <laughs> um, but then, I mean, at the same time, I don't really like blame people who, let's say, have experienced male violence and then they see someone trans and, and maybe wrongly interpret that they're a man. But even if that interpretation is wrong, I don't really uh, blame them. You know, like if it's like a old lady seeing like a someone that they might think is a, a, a man in like a woman's only carriage that might alarm them. And I don't think they should be shamed for that. Um, even, you know, if, even if the interpretation's incorrect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I, I also don't think gender is just an identity. I think it, it is only social, you know, like, we, I don't think that we just sort of identify as a gender and make it happen. I think gender is a process of social, you know, categorization that has to do, you know, at least previously with the division of labor, um, but currently, you know, with how we're treated differently in society, et cetera. And we don't have control to just snap our fingers in our own head and magically change it. When we transition, things change, but if we don't transition, they don't. And, you know, something that's interesting about the whole shelter comment, I, I think this is part of the problem with a billionaire setting the agenda for women's rights, um, which is that JK Rowling has never lived in a woman's shelter. I have. And uh, what I can tell you is that I had a woman who was born a woman, uh, you know, touch me inappropriately, both my breasts and, you know, in between my legs without my permission, um, because she said that, her, you know, she really liked trans women. And now I didn't give her permission to do that. I didn't feel particularly violated, but she also didn't ask me if that was all right. So I, I think there's also, when you have a billionaire setting the agenda for women's rights, talking about a woman's shelter and homelessness, something that she'll never experience, uh, it's, it's not going to be connected to the actual needs of women living in a women's shelter on the ground. Because I could tell you, they have, uh, you know, hundreds of problems and trans women being in the shelter with them. It's probably not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to, to, to see that the same way. I, I was really like kind of rubbed the wrong way by her piece. And I think, you know, that also kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about like proletarian feminism versus other forms of feminism is I think like um, one of the reasons why I and I think honestly many people have found mainstream feminism to be off-putting is that it's not in touch with like the struggles of everyday people um, and that's not even just like it's not even that it's not in touch with like the poorest of people it's literally it's not even in touch with like middle class like average people the people setting the agenda are these people in like thousand dollar dresses on the red carpet and like <laughs> uh people like jk rowling um and so yeah i think it's definitely like that's kind of the issue part of it is that it's 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 extremely out of touch um especially like yeah i think another kind of thing that um has I think has been like a, a issue with misconceptions here is that when the biggest representatives of um like gender issues or trans issues are people who are like celebrities rather than people who have actually like experienced poverty or whatever or people who have experienced what you've experienced um then you also end up with like people having the same views as as JK Rowling about what being in a women's shelter is like for cis women surrounded by it uh, or cis women when a trans woman walks in you know it's just not really connected uh, with reality. Yeah and you know not to sort of make a wide generalization off of a single story but 
you know, I can tell you when I walked into my shelter, the women were actually happy because they were like, yeah, we have someone who's like young, clean and stylish, you know, and they liked that. Uh, and we showed solidarity to each other. And that's why I just, again, I think that all of these theories about, you know, what's going on, they can't be disconnected from social reality. You have to go to the people and ask them and listen to them and investigate among them before you just write something up about a problem that's, you know, mostly non-existent. And, you know, even in the U.S. with, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, in the middle of, in the middle of this sort of triple crisis that we're in, which is one, a public health crisis, two, a political crisis, and three, an economic crisis, uh, instead of, you know, working at all to alleviate that, you're going to exacerbate a culture war? Like, is that really what your priority is right now? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about these these culture wars, especially as it pertains to gender. Um, like, you know, how we've talked about how, you know, leftists think that like posting online is is activism there's, or is like doing, doing the work or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of like right-wingers or whoever who think that like talking about like making fun of gender issues or whatever uh or or concern trolling about women's sports um they also think that they're like feel like they're doing something and this doesn't again it ends up like not really impacting the majority of the people but it seems almost like a distraction like it creates a sort of illusion that you're doing something for people when like you're really not changing any sort of realities for, for anyone I mean I, I I feel for people in in the U.S. right now who still haven't gotten stimulus checks and stuff like that like there's so many things that you know people all agree on needing and it just seems like the politicians and the elites are just trying to manufacture these petty disagreements yeah, and you know, while I don't like reductive explanations of things like racism and sexism and transphobia as, you know, simply things that they do to divide us, right? I think there's more of like a historical context that created them, but they definitely use it to divide us. I mean, in a time where we should be uh, focusing our energy on identifying who our enemy is, which is not each other. Our fellow worker is not our enemy, right? It's the people that literally use this crisis to profit uh, for themselves off of, you know, hundreds and hundreds uh, and hundreds of thousands of, you know, deaths across the world. I mean, that's who our enemy is, uh, along with the state, which protects them at our expense. And instead of targeting them and fighting with them, uh, we're looking at each other and fighting with each other over who should be allowed to compete in this, you know, sports game or this or that. And I, I just think it's terrible and a complete uh, misuse of our energy and time. Yeah. So, I mean, in Canada, we had like this big thing on, about college campuses and uh, trans issues because a professor at U of T who's now very famous uh, talked about how he refuses to use uh, they them pronouns right and like this became a huge discussion uh, all over the media in, in Canada and it's like this affects like not a very significant amount of Canadians but they were acting as though it did and they were acting like and like both sides again were being very weird about it like there were people acting like they're going to go to jail for using the wrong pronouns then <laughs> there's also people who um was like okay this professor is like literal hitler which is like again a, a, it's not dealing with the situation in a level way and one thing i thought about is because one of the issues he brought to light was a ta who showed his videos to the class and the ta was um, condemned by the university for showing that video because they said that it was a uh, transphobic and like then th this professor took it as a sort of um 
indication that like you know he's right and there's this big tyranny of the pronouns and what a big pronoun tyranny um and i guess what i was thinking is like well this might actually identify an issue like there's a an issue with you know tas and on campus having very little power and with ad administrative overreach and like the admin having so much power over you know what TAs can do and say. And meanwhile, you know, I, I've been a TA and like you, you work for like way more hours than you get paid for. Um, and so I was like, you know, this could have been an opportunity to talk about the actual constraints that are on people's academic freedoms and like that are on, you know, TA's precarious situations, but instead this got turned into like a sort of, oh, like this is the fault of like, either this is the fault of one professor, or this is the fault of like five trans people, like whatever side you, you're on, like it just, it becomes a sort of like really petty issue when it could have been an opportunity to talk about like actual uh, administrative problems that are happening in universities. And I feel like this just happens in like so many different areas of politics. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I think it's just kind of ironic, slightly funny and also sad that like, you know, while you'll have people like JK Rowling saying that there's a culture of fear around discussing certain topics and then you have the other side saying, no, there isn't. But then whenever someone discusses them in a way that disagrees with the dominant liberal narrative, I mean, you have a mob of people out there trying to get them fired. I mean, you know, the, the woman, Sasha White, who I keep bringing up, I mean, I disagree with her on pretty much everything, but the idea that uh, one tweet that she made, which wasn't even, I mean, I, I personally wasn't offended by it as a transgender woman, uh, the idea that a group of internet vigilantes can find her job and get her fired for that. I mean, as a union organizer, that just shows that we live in a, a nation with terrible labor protections. I mean, you know, the fact that your job is so precarious that a group of online strangers can just get you fired for taking an ideological position that you disagree with is, is I think a sign of our declining labor protections. Yeah, it is. It's it's a sign. It is a, a material issue that we have fooled ourselves into thinking is wholly ideological in the sense that, like, uh, you know, I, I think what what's kind of funny to me is a lot of the people who are like going up against this cancel culture thing, which I agree with, um, like going up against I agree with you know critiquing this cancel culture because I think it's it's awful. But when you do that, and then you're also like a free market fundamentalist, or you're like against labor protections. Then I'm kind of like, how do you expect, uh, like, how do you expect to <laughs> to solve this problem? Like, this is essentially your ideology. This is the marketplace of ideas, and like that's what's happening to you. Um, and so I think, yeah, like the only way out is to, to organize better, better labor protections. And I think, you know, um, yes, there's an explanation in terms of like, yes, like people's, the culture, there are cultural explanations for why people are this way. But I think also it really does show a decline uh, in just like the strength of labor as well, because like we don't really like, we don't really talk about labor protections as much as we talk about other um, social issues. Yeah, and you know, I think it's uh, no coincidence that you know around the time uh, after you know sort of socialism was defeated um, and these new social movements really began springing up again, you know, uh, that they stopped talking about capitalism that the economy was seen as something, you know, sort of outside of us uh, that most social movements did not really have to contend with. Um, and, you know, that that happened along with uh, a generation of so-called activists who uh, have no idea what the labor movement is or no real understanding of it. 
um, and who don't, you know, even talk about it in, in their day-to-day -day work. Um, and so I think that's why you see with a lot of social movements, whether it's, you know, and I, I hesitate to even call them movements because when you talk about like the feminist movement or the trans movement, I mean, these people aren't organizing on the ground, door to door, you know, at, in the streets, et cetera. It's mostly online, in the academy, uh, you know, in, you know, the places where policy is created. So it's not even necessarily an organic movement. Um, but, you know, they tend to be so focused on simply changing language and not changing uh, material conditions. Um, and I think like that's that's not a coincidence at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it almost is like funny for me to say, but it's like there's op vibes with like the modern left, you know, and it's like, I, I, I again, like I'm not saying there's like a literal conspiracy, but it does like sometimes it just seems like there's a lot of useful idiots and like, you know, one of the things that has really just driven me nuts recently is there was that sort of expose on, on Pornhub and like its use of um, like non-consensual and at times like underage videos. Um, and so much of the response from like left pages I was following were people just like up in arms defending Pornhub and being like, oh, this article is aligned with the Christian right. Um, this is like, you know, they're demonizing Pornhub when like Facebook and Twitter are worse and like big tech is worse than, as if Pornhub's not part of big tech. And it's just crazy to me to see like so-called left movements kind of side with like like MindGeek who owns like or Pornhub like the, who is one of the <laughs> largest like most profitable corporations it's just I don't know it just blows my mind and it it, it feels like an awe yeah, I mean, this is the problem with social justice movements today is that they're, they have no class analysis. And so they are, in the end, going to be used as a tool of capital. And uh, they don't understand it. Um, but, you know, I the whole debate is just so asinine to me. I mean, you know, one of the uh, defenses I heard for Pornhub is that you know, some uh, sex workers who make money off of Pornhub are undocumented. And if you require uh, people to verify their age with an ID, that it could take away income from undocumented people. But yet for some reason, instead of organizing to change, uh, you know, the uh, treatment of undocumented people or the pathway to citizenship or lack thereof or concentration camps and also instead of you know uh, attempting to change uh, the lack of a social safety net to the point that you know you lose a job and, and you could starve I mean they instead say well we shouldn't censor people so we should just you know not verify their age or, or you know identity and I, I just think that's crazy I mean you know what about undocumented children who are being exploited on those sites. Do you not care about them, you know? And it's just sort of using this like superficial social justice logic to in the end defend capital. And that's why I think you see so many of these popular online sex worker activists who are coming out in defense of OnlyFans. They only take 20%, that's not a lot, or in defense of Pornhub instead of criticizing Pornhub. And I always compare it to when I organized fast food workers we didn't, you know, defend McDonald's or Burger King. We wanted to tear them down as much as we could so that we could get everything we were owed. And it's just a totally different orientation than what you see these activists doing, which is defending these companies. Yeah, I, I, it makes me wonder a little bit um, if a lot of this has to do with um, kind of how the left in in US and Canada in particular, and I think the UK as well, um, is very like libertarian, very like, or anarchist, so to speak. And I think part of that is 
you know, like post-Cold War, everyone's afraid of looking authoritarian. And so we go very far into this sort of anarchist territory where, you know, there's an emphasis on things like mutual aid. Um, you know, you all help each other, but the state doesn't have any obligation to that. Um, and, and I think another thing is, you know, again, like OnlyFans is a perfect example, like, you know, you go and <laughs> make your own money with this website, you go and like, oh, through, like, it, it's kind of like what you're saying with the undocumented people as well. It's like, no, like, let's not, you know, work on giving them universal economic protections. Let's just make sure that they can go and properly be part of the market, properly partake in like capitalist systems. And so again, it just doesn't even seem like a real left. It just seems like some sort of like culturally left libertarianism. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just like uh, libertarian, like free market ideology dressed up in feminist, transgender, intersectional, multicultural garb. Yeah, so like, I mean, and you've written uh, a few pieces um, about the sex industry and, and you've also been very open about your time um, working uh, in sex work. And I mean, I, I'll link these pieces. They're, they're very uh, hard hitting and like, honestly, I learned a lot from them. Um, some people have reacted a little bit um, uh, partially, or <laughs> I've gone a little bit uh, upset. And, and I, I think, you know, it's interesting because it's similar to what I was saying about the trans discourse. I think like the, the discourse on, on sex work is also really explosive and um, people also get really worked up as well. And so what did you like find? How did you find, you know, the engagements with your with your pieces and like, what do you think that says? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, I actually never wanted to write about this. I wanted to start writing on technology. I wanted to write this like long polemic against Andrew Yang. But I saw this conversation on the sex trade um, going in a direction that was, you know, really dangerous. Um, you know, I uh, was an escort, uh, did some time as you know, a dom doing so-called uh, you know, girlfriend experience, uh, GFE. Um, I've experienced what it's like to be sort of like uh, in the sex trade, homeless in a motel, uh, living motel to motel, and then also have experienced making $120,000 a year off of it. And so um, having had that experience and having gone through such horrific uh, violence and having friends who have simply not made it out, you know, who have died uh, due to things related to them being in the sex trade and other friends who have simply uh, either, you know, gone crazy uh, because of uh, drugs that they needed to use to get through it um, or other things. I mean, the, the discourse of trying to sanitize the sex trade trying to whitewash it and its history uh, of being brought here through colonialism um, and, you know, trying to make it out to be this, you know, individual choice, like it's just like any other job instead of the place where we throw everyone who's rejected from the formal economy and say, well, hope you could survive, I, I think is just really terrible and dangerous. And that's why uh, I decided I was going to try and tackle this issue by writing a polemic against the largest so-called socialist organization in the U.S., the DSA, and that's why I contacted a firm who I have known from previous uh, labor jobs because they're pretty involved in the labor movement um, and, you know, linked up with them and we supported each other uh, in publishing this. Yeah, and it was a really eye-opening piece um it was you know I, I I think that when you are new to the left um 
which I, I'm not anymore, but when I was, you know, one of the sort of things that you just kind of take for granted is, is that, you know, okay, well, this is just like any other job. Um, and the only things that make it not like another job is the illegality. And I mean, I do think the illegality does make it more dangerous for, for people, for the sex workers. But I, I think that, you know, one of the things is we don't see it as another job in the sense that suddenly the left is like very pro-capitalist and pro-market as soon as anyone sort of questions the sort of actual labor issues that are within the job itself. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how to like even have this conversation with a lot of, of people on the left because it's seen as sort of demonizing uh, people who are sex workers rather than demonizing this, rather than this being an indictment of the economy and being an indictment of uh, capitalism. It's suddenly now like, I, I feel like the criticisms of the industry are seen as criticisms of, of people that partake in the industry. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that is a strategy uh, of the industry in order to shield itself from any criticism. I mean, and, and this is an undeniable fact. You can even see it playing out in other industries that are taking lessons from the sex industry. I mean, look at the fossil fuel industry. Um, my, you know, my friend was in a labor coalition meeting and the union organizer said, we shouldn't talk about environmentalism because environmentalists are against workers' rights. They wanna take jobs from the building trades. So, you know, you have these fossil fuel workers who are saying, uh, you know, if, if you attack the fossil fuel industry, you are attacking us and our identities and our livelihoods and our families. Uh, that is directly borrowing from the sex industry's playbook. I mean, the idea that critiquing an industry is the same as critiquing the person who survives off that industry is it's completely delusional. Um, and it's sad because most people conceive of this as simply a superficially moral issue. And so they don't want to actually think through their own logic because they'll recognize the holes in what they're saying. The idea that if you critique the industry, you're critiquing the worker. And so instead, they just say, oh, well, listen to sex workers. Okay, so you're telling me to listen to the small minority of people that are actually organized because the majority of them are not organized. And if you talk to them, you'll find all sorts of varying opinions among them. And the ones that are organizing and calling for the decriminalization of pimps, traffickers, and johns are the ones organized by these imperialist sponsored and funded uh, organizations, right? So I, I think that's a, a huge, huge problem. And liberal identity politics are then applied to this situation to the point that everyone is afraid that if they say something on it, they'll be attacked as speaking over sex workers or you know, one of the other uh, phrases denoting moral condemnation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a desire to homogenize the sort of experience and, you know, make it seem like everyone who's been in the industry has had the same experience. So if you listen to like any sex worker, it's going to be representative of other people's experience. And honestly, like this really also just seems like another sort of casualty of, of, identity politics right now as well right because we see the same sort of thing with homogenizing you know the experiences of women or the experiences of minorities it's like listen to x uh without really specifying who and i think also this is kind of um taken i mean i don't know which playbook came first uh but i think like i, I really see it um from like the imperialist playbook where it's kind of like well the people of this country want us to go in and like change their government and then they bring in like the most sort of like 
privileged members of that aren't going to be impacted by regime change um and they are like please bomb my country or whatever and i kind of feel like it's the same thing where you have a sort of gentrification of of the sex work discourse by like first world women on only fans being like this is the experience this is what doing sex work is like when it's not representative of I would say most people worldwide who have been in the sex trade. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that there's criticisms to be had on both sides of the debate, right? So to the abolitionist feminists, I would argue that uh, simply addressing the demand side or the Johns uh, is not going to abolish the sex trade. I, I think the only thing that will fundamentally abolish it is social revolution, which changes the fundamental, uh, you know, relations of production so that uh, we don't live in this sort of winner takes all world, uh, a world of like stark inequality, um, you know, an economic system which depends on a reserve army of unemployed workers who then have to go into prostitution and other underground economies to survive. But at the same time, uh, to the other side, which wants to simply expand the sex trade, legitimize it as natural, um, I, I think that they're simply, uh, you know, arguing on behalf of the industry, on behalf of capital. Um, and I think that they're doing more harm than good. And while I don't think any one reform is going to end the sex trade, I do think that the equality model is something uh, far more worth pursuing than full decriminalization. That's interesting. I mean, I, I've personally advocated for decrim just from like a perspective of like not thinking it's the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system to deal with. Um, but yeah, I definitely hear that too. I, I think like ultimately what's going to fix things is like not necessarily legislating on the industry per se, but realizing like proper economic protections for everybody, universal economic programs. Um, which I think has been abandoned by the left by and large for particularist uh, sort of causes instead. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's an, I, I've, maybe I need to look into other models as well. <laughs> yeah, and you know, what I mean by that is like, it, what, what that model says is uh, fully decriminalize everyone who survives on the sex trade, right? So anyone who works in, you know, prostitution, et cetera, they should be fully decriminalized. But the pimps, the traffickers, and the buyers, we don't decriminalize them. And, it, you know, in my head, the way it works is like, you know, we know, for example, that the police and prison system is not going to end domestic violence or rape. Uh, they're not. Uh, sometimes, more often than not, they make it worse uh, if they're not the perpetrators themselves. However, we also know that if we decriminalize those acts, they're going to increase in society. Um, and I, I think it's the same thing with the sex trade is that we cannot, uh, you know, capitalism commodifies everything, right? Um, but we don't just let it commodify things. Right now, you know, they made one of the first... Uh, you know, they're, they're starting to commodify uh, the future of clean water, I just read. Um, we can't just say capitalism commodifies everything, let's let it happen. We have to fight that tooth and nail. Well, it's the same with our bodies and our sexualities. We can't just allow capitalism to commodify them. We have to fight it. Uh, otherwise, don't even call yourself an activist or leftist or whatever you call yourself. Yeah, I think there's definitely a sort of apathy with that, and I see it a lot, um, especially like, you know, there's a there's those sayings like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, or like, you know, even in environmental discourse, I've seen a lot of like, stuff that's being like, well, there's no point in like, making any sort of personal changes, because 
this is all inevitable. I think, you know, yeah, you do have to kind of take less of a passive role and uh, do what you can. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's a, a good point. And um, maybe, yeah, I'll have to read some more, but, <laughs> but yeah, um, we are coming up on time. And uh, is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah, no, uh, just please follow me on medium, uh, proletarianfeminist.medium.com and on Twitter at NCLASS Society. And hopefully I'll be having some uh, more pieces coming out. Um, and thank you for having me on. Can't wait for the more pieces. Um, I've, I've had a little bit of a teaser from them. Uh, I've been told a little bit, so I'm, I'm waiting for them. Uh, and uh, I'll share them when they come out. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, us.